Let me make some announcements while you turn to Luke 18, and then I'll tell you what we've been doing and what we're going to look at today. But tonight we do have, we do have our community groups meeting. It's a holiday weekend, and some of the Sunday, all of the Sunday holidays, we don't have our community groups on Easter and Mother's Day and Father's Day. But Memorial Day is tomorrow, but we are meeting for our community groups tonight. So if you're going to be in town and you're part of a community group, then your group will, uh, will be meeting. I know that Zach Hamilton is out of town, and his group, I think, is meeting over at the Castles. But if you're in Zach's group and don't know where you're supposed to meet, check at the Information Center. But I just want to make that clear because uh, there have been some questions about whether our community groups are meeting tonight. They are. And tomorrow we have our Memorial Day picnic at Lake Erie Metro Park. We start eating at uh, noon. And it's $7 to enter the park with your vehicle. If you would bring a side dish, a dessert, and a beverage, the church will provide the main dish. And I'm told it's going to be 80, 80 or so uh, degrees tomorrow. And uh, we are by the water there, obviously. And it's always a little bit cooler there. So it actually should be a, should be a great day weather-wise. And we always have a good time together. So we hope you can come. Our Wednesday program, midweek program, has ended for the summer, so that won't start up again until the fall, so don't show up here on this Wednesday uh, or any Wednesday this uh, summer expecting our full complement of programs. And this Saturday is our uh, second of two newcomers brunches uh, that we've had. We had one a week ago yesterday, had a uh, good group of folks over at our house, had a great time, and uh, we've had a number of you register for this one this Saturday at our place at 10 a.m., but if you have not, this is your last chance to do that. You do so at the information desk out in the lobby, and you are to come or are welcome to come if you've never been to one. So consider yourself a newcomer if you've never been to one of our brunches. You may have been here a long time, but things were scheduled and you weren't able to make it. So uh, if you've not been to one, no matter how long you've been here, then we would like to have you uh, 10 a.m. this coming Saturday. If you go to the information desk, they'll give you a card that has our address on it and our phone number and they will put you on the list so we know how much brunch to make. And then a little more long range, July the 27th is our next baptism. If you have never been baptized, then uh, you need to be because Christ commands that for his followers. And if you don't know uh, what that is uh, and what the significance of it is, then that's what we're here for is to try to help explain that to you. So please see me before you leave today, and we can set a time to get together to talk about baptism and uh, see if you are qualified to be baptized. That means you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, and if you have come to him by faith, then that's the qualification to be baptized, and then we want to make sure you understand why you're baptized and what its significance is. So see me about that. July 27th is the next baptism. For the last few weeks, we have been looking at uh, philosophy of church ministry, and if you've been with us for those weeks, you've heard me say that what we mean by that is trying to apply wisdom to church life. That's what philosophy of church ministry means, because philosophy means love of wisdom. And so we call it philosophy of church ministry then, as we try to apply, wisdom is the application of knowledge. So the Bible gives us knowledge about what the church is and what the church is to do, and wisdom then applies that knowledge. And philosophy of church ministry is our effort to do that. So going back a few weeks, we started with a definition of, of what the church is. And that comes to us from the very word itself that's translated uh, church in your New Testament. It's the Greek word ekklesia. 
And ek means out, and kaleo means call. And the church then is a called out group of individuals, called out of the world and to God. Well, that affects then the way you go about church because it means not everybody is part of the church. And the church needs to self-identify itself, needs to be aware of the fact that we are God's called people, and the Bible tells us what we are called to be and to do. We are to be God's special possession, God's chosen people, God's holy people. We are to be in the process of being continually sanctified, that is, continually made holy by being set apart from the world and uh, owned by God. That's what those who comprise the church, this called-out group of people, uh, are in their individual lives. And then the church collectively is to carry out the mission that Jesus, Jesus gave us. So as we go about church life, one of the things that we need to make sure we do is keep clear the difference between the church and the world. And I beat on that for a few weeks because I'm convinced that we have lost that, that we've forgotten that, that people just do church and don't think about what church is. So people show up at church, and you've heard me say, you then have a crowd, not necessarily a congregation. And Christ is calling a people out of the world to himself for his very own. And those people are his, his church. So in the, that affects profoundly the way you go about church ministry then. Who are we designing our worship services for? Well, we're designing them for the church. It is the church in worship, and only the church can worship. So much of what we see happening in our churches today, I am convinced, is a failure to just think hard about what the church is, and as a result of what the church is, this is how the church is to go about its, its work. We here need to think about that. You need to be aware of that, and that's why I'm doing this series, to make sure we're all on the same page especially at this juncture in the life of our church, as God has given us this place, allows us to have, Lord willing, a grand opening, July 12 and 13, where we are going to invite the community to, to come here and, we, uh, and then continue to do that in an ongoing way. Hope to see folks come to Christ and then us be used as his instruments to see them grow in, in Christ. But as we do that, we need to understand what the church is and why we do stuff the way we do. So that's philosophy of church ministry, wisdom applied to the life of the church. And since I've been beating on that idea, there's that there's the church and the world, and they are to be distinct according to the Bible, then the question naturally arises, well, how is this church that is separate from the world going to carry out a mission to the world? How do you bridge the gap between the church and the world if they are in these two different spheres? And I've made the case, starting a couple of weeks ago, that there are a number of bridges available to us uh, in order for us to relate appropriately to our unbelieving friends and family and co-workers and neighbors. And those fall into categories like uh, mercy ministry, that we can do ministries of mercy and should to show the love of Christ to people, to bridge the gap between where they are hurting and how we can help. But also there is our commonality, having been made in the image of God and also still struggling with sin. Even though we're called out of the world and we have been saved in the Bible's terminology, we each of us still struggle with sin. And so none of us, none of us have our families as they ought to be. None of us has our marriages as they, they ought to be. 
We all struggle with that. And you have that in common then with your neighbors. And, your, and so uh, all kinds of issues that they face, you feel the pressure of as well. Finances, relationships, sickness, all kinds of things. And the Bible has something to say about all of those things. But the ultimate answer to all of those things, we know, is a relationship with the Lord Jesus, who, when he returns, will give us a new world and new bodies and a new order of things. So all of those kinds of things, mercy ministries, the kinds of common uh, struggles that, that we all have, are all ways that we can bridge this gap that exists between the church and the world. And as we do that, it is for the purpose of giving people the good news of Jesus, seeing them come to him so that they are part of that group of people that are called out of the world and to Christ, that they become part of the church, which then brings us to the issue of personal evangelism. And we started that last week. We started looking at your witness, your evangelism, your work and my work in giving the good news, the gospel, to those that God brings into our circle. And last week I made the point that we need to avoid the all-too-common mistake of seeing a one-size-fits-all gospel. That is, you go to a seminar and you learn a technique, and you use that technique on everybody you meet. Now, it may be a fine technique for some people, but if you try to use the same technique for all people, Uh, you're going to miss getting to the heart, literally, of where that person is, one. And two, you run the risk of coming off like a salesperson, right? And haven't you seen Christian people who do that? They've got a pitch that they want to make. They've got a particular approach that they've been taught to to use in order to make it. And then we, we come off as slick and salesy as we do that. Rather than dealing with this person as an individual, trying to get to know them and their particular struggles. And so last week I said, in order to be effective in giving the gospel on a personal level, you have to know your audience. You've got to know who you're dealing with. And we see this in the life of Jesus. Last week in Luke 18, we saw Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. And Jesus surmised very quickly in the, first, in the very introductory question that this young man asked Jesus what this guy needed to have emphasized to him about the good news. He came to Jesus in Luke 18, and he says, Good master, what good thing can I do to inherit eternal life? And you remember Jesus' response. Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God. So right away, Jesus starts to address where this guy's coming from. Where's he coming from? His major malady that causes everything else for him is that he is self-righteous. He believes that he is good enough to do what's necessary to be recommended to God. And Jesus puts the lie to that by saying there's no one good except God, and since you're not God, you must not be good. And then goes on to say, but just to show you how not good you are, how no good you are, keep the commandments. And then this guy in his self-righteousness says, which? Bring them at me. I've kept them all. And Jesus goes through the list, and as he goes through the list, he goes through the ones that this guy probably has not failed on, murder, theft, those kind of things. Um, But then he talks about bearing false witness. Uh, He's probably done that. But then he says, nevertheless, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to those who need. 
The Bible says he went away sorrowful because he was wealthy. Jesus had put his finger on this guy's God. And this guy's God was his money. And his self-righteousness was exposed because he was not good and he was not righteous and therefore he could not recommend himself to God. So that's one type of unbeliever. That's one pole in the poles of unbelievers in the extremes of unbelievers out there. One extreme is the self-righteous person who says, I'm good enough to have a relationship with God and to go to heaven. But then there's another type of sinful person, not the self-righteous person, but for lack of a better term, the self-indulgent person. This is the person who lives a wanton, sinful lifestyle. They don't try to keep the rules. Or to put this another way, you've got these two types of sinful people. You've got one who is religious and one who is irreligious. Religious people are often self-righteous people because they believe by their religion that they can have a relationship with God. And as a matter of fact, the word religion comes from attaching, connecting. We get our word ligament, is the Latin word ligare. We get religion from it. And so it is to, to tie together, to relate. And so I'm related to God by virtue of my religious rituals that I do. That's what many religious people think. So you've got the self-righteous, religious person, but then you've got the self-indulgent irreligious person. They don't, God's not a factor in their lives. But here's what's important for us then, friends. These two, two extremes, self-righteous, religious very often, self-indulgent, irreligious, and both of them need the same thing. Both of them need the gospel, but they need to see their need for the gospel pointed to in the way you approach them, just as Jesus did. So the rich young ruler, he's one of these self-righteous religious types. Jesus points out, you're not righteous, you're not good. But in Luke 18 as well, Jesus gave another story. Please take a look there. Luke 18. In verse 9, Some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. Just stop there. (laughs) Notice how he prayed. He's not praying to God. He's praying with God as his foil to pray about himself. Now, just this is really an aside. But friends, when we pray, we need to think about the fact that we are talking to someone. We're not primarily instructing other people. So if your prayers are peppered with, Lord, we know that X, Y, and Z. Well, the Lord knows we know that. Our prayers need to be matters of praise to him. Lord, this is who you are, and this is what we believe about you. And petitions to him, Lord, this is what we are asking of you. But back to this guy, he stands up to pray about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. 
Now in verse 12, he's even be- gone beyond the law. These are, these are beyond the requirements of the law. So I'm so good, I do more than the law demands. But the important thing for everybody to know is I'm not like that guy. So this guy elevates himself, one, by his self-righteousness, righteousness, his religion, the stuff he does, but also by contrasting himself to other people. I'm not like that guy. And who's that guy? The tax collector. And what's the tax collector? The hated Roman official who's a traitor to the Jews because he is aiding the oppressive Roman government in their work and he is profiting from it. Everybody hates the tax collectors. And so that's why you find Jesus is hanging around with publicans, that is, tax collectors and sinners. And that was a scandal because they were scandalous people. But notice verse 13. You've got another self-righteous guy in the Pharisee, but in verse 13, the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So here's a guy who had lived a sinful life. His sinful life was wrapped up even and and profoundly and obviously in his very livelihood. And he knows that. And he's come to recognize that. And he sees his, his sin and he confesses that sin to God and simply says, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man rather than the other went home justified before God. Now, when it says justified there, that's our word to declare righteous. That God declares someone righteous even though they're not. We saw it from Romans 4 last week. That God justifies Romans 4 and verse 5. Romans 4 and verse 5. God justifies the wicked. And here God is justifying this sinful tax collector. Not because the tax collector all of a sudden became righteous. But because God gives righteousness. His righteousness to those who see their own inability and depend on him for their righteousness, their right standing before him. And ultimately, Christ is the one who gives us this right standing because he lived the life that we should have lived, and that's applied to us when we come to God through him. So Jesus says, this is the guy who was justified, the one who had the sinful lifestyle, and Jesus leaves it at that. He doesn't go on about this guy's sin how horrible this guy is, how many people he had ripped off. He's sinful, he knows it, and he needs a righteousness from outside of himself, and God freely gives that to those who recognize that about themselves and ask God and ask God for it. So, got two guys here. Each of them need the gospel. One thinks he's too good. The other one thinks he's too bad. And those are the kinds of poles that you have. That's the extreme. The person who is too good, the other person who thinks they're too bad. Or the one who thinks I can do and the other who says I can't do. I can't be a Christian. And both of them have this in common. They both assume, now hear this, they both assume that I must do. Did you all hear that? They both have this in common. The one who is the self-indulgent sinner, obviously a sinner, tax collector, wanton lifestyle, prom- promiscuous, what, abuse, whatever it is, abuse of their body, they're self-indulgent. They think, I can't do what's necessary to go to, well, I, and I can't ever then have a relationship with God. And the assumption is I have to do something. And then you've got the person who is self-righteous and religious, 
and their God is their morality, and they think too highly of themselves, and I can do it, and both of them need the same thing. The good news of the gospel is that you're neither good enough or so bad that the gospel can't save you. The good news is Jesus lived and died for both types of sinners. And Jesus approaches those types of sinners differently depending on where they're coming from. We see another example of this in John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And John 4 is the encounter that Jesus had with the, a Samaritan woman at a well. And as we look at this encounter, ask yourself, which category does this woman fit in? Does she fit in the self-righteous or the self-indulgent? The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. When the Lord learned this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone to town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And then John tells us here, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So many of you know this. You have Jews. Jesus is a Jew. And then you have the Samaritans who are half-breed Jews. They are the products of intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews. Centuries earlier. And Jews despised Samaritans. This is why Jesus' parable of the good Samaritan was so scandalous. Because in that parable, you remember he has a, a priest go by. and the, So you have these Jews that go by that won't help this man who's been beaten. But a Samaritan comes and does. And so Jesus is approving the work in that story of a Samaritan over that of the Jews. And he is pointing that right at the heart of the self-righteous Pharisees. So here Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. And she's concerned about that because she knows that's violating social protocol. One, she's a woman, and two, she's a Samaritan. He's, he's violating two things that normally went on. Men did not talk to women in, in public normally, and uh, she's a Samaritan woman at that. And Jesus says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, <laughs> Jesus, Jesus has an end in mind here, doesn't he? So he's here by his appointment. She's there by his appointment. And he's going to turn this conversation to spiritual matters. There's physical water here, but there's something more important than physical water. There is this living water. Verse 11. But you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can I get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will come in him and, and a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She still doesn't get it, and Jesus says, call your husband and come back. Ah, This is where we're going to get to her particular thing, self-indulgent, right? 
go and call your husband. And she says, well, I have no husband, verse 17. And Jesus says, yep, you've had several. And the one you're with now is not your husband. Now, he doesn't belabor that. He simply makes that, that point to her. Now, get, please get this. Jesus is talking to this woman about something that will give her satisfaction forever, namely himself. But he points out to her that she has been pursuing things that cannot satisfy. And that's why she keeps doing it. Because the stuff you're chasing doesn't do what you think it does. You can't find satisfaction in these relationships, in, the, in your promiscuity. You can't find security in a man. So what Jesus points out to her in that verse is, you've got an idol in your heart that needs to be replaced by me. And friends, every time we give someone the good news, every time we give someone the gospel, that's what we're doing. We're trying to show them the particular idol or idols that they are chasing and how Jesus is the replacement for those idols. And in fact, the reason they chase those things is precisely because they don't have Jesus. Whether the, whether the self-righteous, religious sinner, or the self-indulgent, irreligious sinner, both of them need the exact same thing. But Jesus in his encounters comes at them differently depending on the particular manifestation of their sin. Self-indulgence, self-righteousness, religion, irreligion. And we're not going to turn there, but he did the same thing in the the chapter before this, in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, he's got this famous encounter with Nicodemus. You guys remember that? Which type of sinner is he? She's a self-indulgent sinner. What kind of of sinner is, is Nicodemus? He's a self-righteous religious type, right? And what does Jesus say to him? You can't get it done. You must, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So for all of your stuff, for all of your religiosity, you are, verse 10 of chapter 3, you, Nicodemus, are the teacher in Israel. That's what he calls him. And the truth is, you don't understand what I'm telling you? I spoke through Ezekiel about the fact that I would give my people a heart from above, a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. And you don't get what I'm talking about when I say you must be born from above? It appears that Nicodemus ultimately came to Jesus. He participated in Jesus' burial at the, uh, after the crucifixion. But here he comes as a self-righteous, religious guy, and Jesus is pointing out his self-righteous sin. So depending on who it is, Jesus takes a different tact. And what I'm saying to you is a one-size-fits-all approach is not what Jesus modeled. The thing you got at the seminar about do this with everybody, everybody has a different manifestation of their particular kind of sin. And so you, like Jesus, I, like Jesus, need to know that person know where their particular idol is, and then show how the gospel addresses that particular idol. Now, those are the two poles. Religious, irreligious, self-righteous, self-indulgent. Those are the two poles. And then you've got every mix in between, right? 
I mean, not every self-indulgent sinner has committed every sin there is to commit, thankfully. And not every self-righteous sinner is as obviously pompous as these guys. So there's all of the mix in between. But you, Jesus gives us these poles so that we can see what's at work in the hearts of people. And then that, that work works out in different people in different ways. So how do I use that then as I'm talking with people who are family members and who are co-workers and so on? So I want to give you some suggestions about that. I'm suggesting you're going to encounter people who are indulgent and you're going to encounter people who are righteous in their own mind and then mixes in between. So how do you go about evangelizing, giving the gospel to those, those people? Well, first let me start with the in, indulgent types. As you interact, as we interact with people who are self-indulgent, irreligious, God is not part of the picture, whether literally or practically, you'll find these people fitting into at least three subcategories. They're the self-indulgent type, but you'll find three kinds of things happening with them. Here's one. You'll find that they are searching because they have found that the stuff they're indulging in does not satisfy. And so you will find people in that category who say things that indicate it ain't working the way it's supposed to work. And when they do that, this is God giving you an opportunity to point them to living water that satisfies. They are all miniature Mick Jaggers. I can't get no satisfaction. There's a man on the TV telling me how white my shirt should be. But he can't really be a man because he don't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I can't get no. You guys want me to go on? Okay. I mean, that's the anthem. That's the theme for the self-indulgent person. Or desperado. I mean, that's what that's all about. You ain't getting no younger. And your pain and your hunger are driving you home. And so you've looked for this and you've looked for that and you've found nothing. And freedom? <laughs> oh, freedom, that's just some people talking. That's what it says, isn't it? But it's really absolutely true. That's what the self-indulgent life does. And it leaves people, many of them, at some point in their life, searching. So what you're looking for is that word, that expression... That situation in the life of that person that indicates that he or she is searching. And they'll say it from time to time. I mean, you know, when you, you hear people say stuff, they just blow it off, but you hear people say stuff, hey, I'm just living the, what do we say? I'm just living the dream. You've already seen that the dream is more like a nightmare. And that's why we say this sarcastic thing, just living the dream. Everything's great with me. No, no it's not. So one subcategory is people who are searching. Here's another one. People who are hurting. Because the self-indulgent life most often leads to hurt. Hurting your body, hurting your psyche, hurting other people. 
self-indulgent, abuse, abuse of the body, abuse of substances. And so this person is, you find the person who is hurting. They've kind of hit the proverbial dead end. They've hit the wall. And now God gives you an opportunity to show them that they have been chasing things that do not satisfy. And then a third category for the indulgent person is they may out and out, not just searching and you have to probe, they may out and out ask you, somebody who's asking, believe it or not. How do I know this? Because Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 said, be ready always to do what? To give an answer to those who ask for a reason, for the, for the reason, for the hope that is within you. These are people who say, I've got no hope. I realize that. And you look like you do. You've got difficulties, but you handle those difficulties differently than I do. And so I'm asking you, what's the deal with you? What makes you tick? Now let me just say this, dear friend. If you hang around people long enough and you never have anybody ask you what's the deal with you, then it may be because you're not showing Jesus to them. It may be because you don't look different enough. It may be because they're not seeing a hope in you that they don't have. They should see that. They should, in their conversation with you, hear you take a different take on life than they take. Not in a hostile way. It's just this is the way I see things. God will get. God has taken care of me in the past. He'll take care. He'll take care of me now. With those layoff notices going out to everybody, and people on the ledge and ready to jump, you're saying God's going to take care of me. My God will supply all of my needs. You're saying that. You're taking that approach. When they come and say, you know, if you're a guy and my old lady keeps giving me a hard time and they're having problems in their marriage, that's the way they talk, my old lady, okay? My old lady's giving me a hard time and you don't chime in. You know, if you chime in and say, oh, you think your old lady gives you a hard time, okay? I'm married to a religious old lady and now, and she should know better. If you chime in with that, nobody's going to ask you for the hope that is within you. So how do you, how do you see these, these folks? They're indulgent, and how do, you, how do you find, by God's providence, opportunities to talk? Well, you, you find them searching and hurting and asking. Well, that's the indulgent types. Well, what about the self-righteous types? Well, self-righteous people are very difficult for that very reason. I don't need anything. I've got it together. Now, God has a way of humbling a self-righteous person. You know, I don't wish this, of course, on anybody, but I'm just telling you, Almighty God can humble anybody. He can put that self-righteous person flat on his or her back in an instant. And then all of a sudden they realize, I'm not in control like I thought I was. I don't have it together like I thought I did. And now they're willing to listen when they weren't just the day before. That's, that's one. But here's something that I've done and I recommend to you. I mean, God can do that, of course, and open a door. But I would recommend that you uh, engage the self-righteous person in their religious view. 
Ask them about it. Hey, tell me, what, you know, what are you? What do you, what do you do? What, are, what do you do? What religion are you? And if they are a particular religion, if they're a practicing, then you get a chance to talk about that. Now, that could run the gamut of religions, couldn't it? Or denominations. Could run the, absolutely run the gamut. You go, holy cow, I've got to learn all, about all these religions so I can talk to whoever happens to come my way in this self-righteous category? Absolutely not, because I'm going to help you out here. No matter the name, no matter the label, here's what it will amount to. It absolutely, bar none, will amount to this. It is a way for an individual to work his or her way to God. No matter the name. And so you already know that going in. You already know that there is one religion and one only that is different from all the rest in the most profound way. And that is, in which direction does a relationship with God occur? Is it us to him or is it him to us? And it's in the grace of the gospel alone that you have God himself coming to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So no matter the label, as you talk about it, so what do you do? What do you do each week? Do you go to church? Do you have a holy book? What do you do? In all of that, that's what I'm telling you, that's what you'll find. If you find an exception to that, let me know. If you find a religion other than biblical Christianity where it's God coming to them rather than the other way around, let me know. I haven't seen it yet. So you talk for a while, that's what it'll be, and then you begin to ask them, hey, what have you heard about Jesus? And many of these will be people who know about Jesus. Not only know about Jesus, they consider Jesus to be their Savior. Oh, yeah, me and Jesus. Are you kidding? We're tight. We... I go to a Christian church. I go to a Christian denomination. But that Christian denomination has us working our way to God. And so you want to ask them, tell me, what, hey, what do you know about Jesus? Well, I mean, Jesus, what do you want to know about him? Well, you believe he died on the cross? Well, yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Well, who do you believe he was? He's uh, son, son of God. A lot of people will say that, son of God. And technically that's true. But I always say, well, you know son of God means he is God. He is God the Son. That Jesus is not inferior to the Father. Jesus is God. And God came as man. Yeah, okay, cool. Yep, that's right. <laughs> I think I remember that from catechism or something. And then you say, so why did God have to do that? What's your understanding of why God, why was it necessary for God to come to earth as man to live and to die? Why was that? If it's about you keeping a list of rules, then why did God have to do that? And I'm here to tell you, friends, there are many religious people, devout religious people, even devoutly religious people in Christendom, use my words carefully, who don't, have not thought about that. Why was it necessary for God to come? Now, I want to show you something in Scripture. Please turn to Galatians chapter 3.
verse 21. Second part of verse 21 says, If a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Now, you just think about that line. If a law had been given that could impart life. If any law, a law, if any list of rules could have been given that had the possibility of imparting life, then it surely would have come by the law. God has a really great list of rules. You can't improve on his list of rules, as a matter of fact. He gave us a perfect list of rules that reflects his character. But here's the thing. Nobody could keep it. And if there was a list of rules that could impart life, it surely would have come by that list of rules. So here's what we do in our infinite sinfulness. We create religions that make other lists of rules as if somehow that's going to change things. There is no list of rules. There is no law that can impart life. None, nada. If it could have happened, it would have been by the one God gave. Now look at the chapter before, chapter 2 and verse 21. Remember the question to your religious friend is, well then, why did Jesus come and die? And look at verse 21. If righteousness could be gained through the law... You see that? Christ died for nothing. I mean, the original question was, then why did Jesus have to come? Why was it necessary for God to become man and live on this earth and walk the dusty roads of Palestine and to suffer and to be beaten and then to die a cruel death on a cross? Why was all that necessary? If you can keep a list of rules, even a cool list of rules, and even if you think your list of rules is better than the one God gave, why was it necessary for him to come? And if you think it can come by any list of rules, including the one that God gave, then Christ died for nothing. So, two groups of sinners, self-indulgent, irreligious, self-righteous, religious, And each of them you will find at various times open or you can create openings to talk to them about the gospel. The indulgent, irreligious, will be searching, sometimes hurting, sometimes asking. The righteous, ask them. And what you will find is they've got a religion that is spelled do, D-O. And you've got to show them that the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E, done. And so who do you do this with? And then we've got to quit. Who do you do this with? Well, you do it with three categories of people. Do it with people you know. Do it with people that you used to know. And do it with people you'd like to know. Just make a list of people you know. And then pray about that list of people. God, these are the people that you have in my circle of influence. Use me as your instrument to speak into the lives of these people. Depending on where they are in their sin. People you know. But what about people you used to know? You just sort of lost track of them. And now, God, you know, in God's providence, we've got all these ways. And let's use it for good, okay? 
Use Facebook for good. Reconnect. Find this person. Hey, remember me. What are you up to? People you used to know. And then people you'd like to know, that is. People that are on the periphery of your circle, but you have never, you've never introduced yourself to. Think about those people. Why don't I know that person at work? Why don't I know that neighbor? Why have I not contacted that family member? You do that, and every person in here all of a sudden develops a fairly long list of people. And that long list of people, each of them fits roughly into those categories or something in between. And then ask God to open doors. Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 5. That's what Paul says to do. He says to pray that God will open a door of opportunity and then says make the most of every opportunity. Okay? All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the treasure of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. Lord, uh, we thank you for the privilege of being your ambassadors. In word and in deed, Lord, you have called us to show Christ and to speak Christ. Lord, there are people all around each of us that need the Lord Jesus. And we want to be used as your instruments to see them come to you. And so we ask you to help us to be wise in our interactions. Help us to live in a way that shows Christ so that the message that we preach, that we speak, will be consistent with the lifestyle that we lead. So that there will be no excuse for them to, uh, based upon us, for them to turn off the message. And Lord, we ask for your spirit to go ahead of us as we make lists of people that we know, people we used to know, people we could get to know. And prepare their hearts. And then providentially, we ask you to prepare encounters with them. Times where we can cross their paths. Subject matter that can be brought up that we can, that we can use to point them to their need for the Savior. Help us to be people, Lord, who understand the, the grand diamond that is the gospel. That as we turn it in so many different directions, it has so many different facets to us. Help us to see that beauty. And having seen that beauty in all the facets of the gospel, may we become expert at analyzing where people are and precisely what they need to hear from the good news of Jesus Christ. And Lord, may you be pleased then to see people drawn out of the world and to yourself and then to your church in order to grow in you, to become people who are giving their lives as you have called us to do, to bring glory to your name. We ask you to go with us this week even and offer us and grant us opportunities to put this into practice. We ask you to grant us safety until next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.